Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. <laughs> it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodak. I am Ewell Dahlqvist. And I'm Sadia Petit. And we are our co- your co-hosts, we're our own co-hosts as well, for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, 33% general pawnings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% dishes. I feel like I'm doing dishes <laughs> every minute of every day. Oh, where in the world are you, Brian, where you don't have a dishwasher? <laughs> well, I'm not downstairs today. I'm upstairs in my home. So that's a big change of pace for me. Where wow. are Where are you, Sadia? Same for me. I'm at home, but I, uh, I am now in my office. I'm not sitting in my room um, so I can be more, you know, focused and professional. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. And you, Joel? In the alternative non-virus universe, I am also in London, but uh, that's not the world we find ourselves in. I am still in New York, I'm supposed to be in London. Hopefully, I'll be in London the next time we record. A few, a few problems finding flights and entering countries these days. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what it would be like. I can't imagine there'll be anyone else on the flight. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I think I, I am generally doing well and I'm kind of sane and happy and managed to uh, like just stay inside in solidarity. But I have to say, thinking about getting on a transatlantic flight freaks me out more than a little. I don't really want to think about it until I'm forced to, when I'm going to be sitting in my hazmat suit in the, the, the <laughs> yeah. little Boeing plane. As long as you've got a mask and gloves and you just sleep the entire way, you'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't even go to the bathroom. Just have like this thing where you can. Just okay, so pee your your, your advice is basically to do, to just like dress up in a special suit, don't pee, and sleep for eight hours. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you should do? You should buy one of those individual tents and cut holes in the bottom for your legs and just walk through the airport <laughs> in a tent, <laughs> and then zip it up when you go through security. <laughs> All right, this has been the Arbitration Station. Talk to you next week. <laughs> um, but we are, are we going to talk about the Investment Arbitration Reporter, IA Reporter? Our sponsor yes. for the fourth season? Yes, okay, let's let's do that. It's IA Reporter time, um, which uh, our listeners will know at this point. IA Reporter is Investment Arbitration Reporter, uh, an online service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. And last year, if you haven't found this out already, iReporter launched a new content feature, a series of case profiles on more than 1,300 investor state arbitrations, including easily searchable data on arbitrators' counsel and key developments in each case. By the way, I spent maybe four hours this weekend with this feature doing some research. Mm-hmm. So... To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to iReporter, visit iReporter.com. 
Are you guys keeping more up to date with arbitration news and updates, or are you guys really just tuning out and becoming hermits, both in life <laughs> and in news? Good question. Yeah, I think for me, like so many other things right now, it's it's both depending on the mood. Like I, I'm either reading everything, every post on Clover Arbitration blog, every Gar thing, every I reported thing, scanning my Twitter feed very thoroughly, or I'm just like checked out for days, depending on yeah what I happen to feel like. I'm definitely mm. the same. I go in waves, even with the reading the the regular news. It's it's completely up and down. Yeah, I agree. I my I this 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 what you're describing is actually forced on me by the fact that there's some time where I just cannot work because I've got my daughter around me, so I just have to zone out, and so it's more Peppa Pig and other cartoons that I'm <laughs> logged in more than before than investment arbitration reporter. However, when it is time to work, I am like hundred percent on it because I have to be super efficient, and so All I right, am like yeah. scrolling like crazy on the newsfeed, like, guys, if I've missed something super, super important or something. There like, is a uh, lot happening, though. Yeah, I, there I, is I should a lot say. Like, I, I actually, I spoke to uh, to someone who works at Exit, that Exit has more, the people working at Exit, that is, they have more to do now than ever before, because all of a sudden, all the arbitrators find themselves with a lot of time on their hands, with, like, hearings canceled and no conferences in particular. Mm -hmm. So they're just, like, churning out procedural orders and decisions and awards left and right when they can work off their backlog, which means that Exit and I assume other institutions have so much to do to just like get these right. decisions out there, which means that there's a lot of news for those of us who follow arbitration. Yeah, there's a lot of news and there's a lot of articles also, because I feel like a lot of people are spending time, you know, doing um, writing articles um, more than Absolutely. before. So there's plenty out there for people to look at and listen to. Also. And, <laughs> and the podcast verse is exploding as well. We... <laughs> Are hearing about new podcasts that are coming out because what else are you going to do at home besides buy a microphone on Amazon and start recording your own podcast? <laughs> exactly. And talk about what's going on in the arbitration world. Yeah. Like we have been doing previously to this pandemic. We're continuing. But yeah. Yeah. Right. We have the first mover advantage. Exactly. So exactly. back exactly. off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talking of which, do you know what we're going to be talking about this podcast? I yes. have a rough understanding, yeah. <laughs> Joel will start. That is true. I will talk about bifurcation, possibly a little bit of trifurcation, although the principle is the same. How, how and when and, and if should you, you should um, divide the case, the arbitration, into separate stages. I was going to say maybe also quadrupleification, but I am not sure if any case has been split oh. into four phases, at least not on purpose at the outset. Maybe it happened later right. on in some other larger cases. But yeah. So uh, bifurcation for the, for the sake of just ease uh, is what I will be addressing. Yeah, and that's interesting because before, I mean, before I had requested a bifurcation for my own, I always thought of it as like a respondent strategy to to enlist these types of procedural devices to delay the proceedings, but it could actually have a strategic advantage for the claimant as well, I imagine. Yes, we will get back to that. And we will get back to that. But I will then follow up with a um, segment on umbrella clauses, because um, we're going to have a week of rain in London, so why not talk about umbrella clauses? <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. Um, but this is going back to the arbitration station roots, which is just like basic fundamental principles. So, um, and then Sadia, you will take us to happy fun time. 
I will take you to Happy Fun Times, and I am going to have the um, the segment that is somewhat still related to um, this COVID nineteen crisis, and which is actually more general on how to motivate or keep teams motivated in this context, but also more generally. So we're going to speak about that motivation theories. Yeah, I oh. think firms are trying to get creative, aren't they? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Are you staying in touch, Joel, with the chambers? Is there like an active network that you guys, like a firm does? Uh, not really. Uh, well, yes, yes and no. So it's kind of the chamber structure, although the, there, are or, there are arbitrators working uh, under this chamber structure. It's kind of like a barrister's thing. So, it, so technically, all the arbitrators are separate. So we don't really have this firm community thing, but... That being said, there are a few people like me who aren't arbitrators just working in various like assistant or lawyer capacities. And we, we stay in touch pretty regularly. And I obviously talk almost every day, maybe not on the phone, but at least through email with the arbitrator that I'm working for because we have pending ah. matters. But, but I don't have this like uh, firm, you know, team thing with regular mm-hmm. meetings because we kind of operate independently. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll keep... Uh... Keep that for the last segment. Um, we have no updates about conferences that we're going to or places we're visiting because that ain't <laughs> happening. Um, oh. So let's uh, start with the first segment then. Bifurcation or trifurcation, what is it? It is, broadly speaking, the power of the tribunal to hear issues in separate phases. And in principle, a dispute could be divided into separate hearings on an almost endless number of bases, jurisdictional issues, merits quantum, counterclaims, specific requests, and so on and so forth. You could really bifurcate individual sub-issues if the tribunal is inclined to do so. Um, In the words of uh, one set of commentators, and this is from a very good book called Procedural Issues in International Investment Arbitration by Commission and Mulu, uh, they write the following. The bifurcation or trifurcation of issues into separate phases is one of the most important procedural decisions a tribunal can make in an investment arbitration. The reason is straightforward. Bifurcation may result in the narrowing or even dismissal of claims, but can significantly add to the cost and duration of an arbitration. And if we start with the commercial context briefly, uh, bifurcation, to the extent that it happens, most commonly refers to a split between liability and quantum. And this is because, generally speaking, painting with the broadest brush available, jurisdictional issues in commercial arbitrations tend not to be that tricky compared to investment treaty arbitration. Um, you do sometimes though see trifurcation in commercial arbitrations and then you typically have jurisdiction followed by liability followed by quantum but you can also see limitation issues being uh, lifted out into separate phase of the, of the case, applicable law, some other preliminary issues. Sometimes you even see two separate phases for liability. So you have a liability plus liability phase where you have two different theories of of liability. Um, In the investment treaty arbitration context, on the other hand, bifurcation typically refers to a split between jurisdiction and merits, and then also sometimes quantum on top of that. The, uh, The UNCTAD, the United Nations conference on trade and 
development. Yeah, well done. I think. (laughs) (laughs) They, of course, issue a lot of reports. And in 2010, they uh, said the following. There has been an almost systematic recourse to bifurcation, separating jurisdiction from the merits on the part of states. Uh, Whereas bifurcation on the merits, i.e. between liability and quantum, is less common. What is your experience, guys, by the way? You have probably had more cases, especially as counsel, than I have. Do you, Would you say that you typically, in, in investment arbitration, uh, see a bifurcation the way the UNCTAD report would suggest? Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think there, it happens more often than I have seen in my own personal practice. So I've only been in two arbitrations that have been bifurcated. So I've never seen a trifurcation in my own practice. I don't know about you, Sonia. Uh, bifurcation for sure. Yeah. And, uh, but I've seen bifurcation also in commercial, in my commercial cases though, maybe they were specifically complicated. I don't know, but I was a bit surprised of you saying that it's a more common issue in investment treaty arbitration. It might be, it might be, you're absolutely right. It, it might, um, you know, open more jurisdictional issues, but yes, to answer your question, I think it is, um, at least in my experience, been much more common to have, uh, you know, uh, a lot, not all my cases were bifurcated uh, in investment treaty. Yeah, and the reason for this, which we'll get back to soon, is that in the treaty context, typically the respondent makes jurisdictional objections that are mm-hmm. uh, complicated enough to justify separate submissions and maybe separate mm-hmm. hearing as well. Yeah. But before we get to that, I should probably just mention uh, something about the power to bifurcate, because this, if, you, if you want to bifurcate the case, uh, the, the reasonable approach, if you are drafting a submission trying to convince the tribunal to do so is that you first must convince the tribunal that it has the power to bifurcate in the first place um, and that of course can that power can be located in the applicable rules or if there's no specific rule the tribunal's general power to direct the, the procedure there are a few arbitration rules with which specifically permit bifurcation for example the SEAC rules which uh, say explicitly that the tribunal may, in its discretion, direct the order of proceedings or bifurcate proceedings. Um, If not mentioned specifically, you can still find this power, as I said, in some sort of general duty or discretion that the the tribunal has to direct the proceedings in the way that it, it sees fit. The typical case here is the Onsitral rules, where in the 2010 and later versions we have Article 17, which many argue is the key heart and soul provision of the Onsitral rules when it comes to procedure, saying that the arbitral tribunal may conduct the arbitration in such manner as it considers appropriate, provided that the parties are treated with equality and that at any stage of the proceedings each party is given a full opportunity of presenting its case. It says his case, actually, but I editorialized, changed it to its case. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and this is actually different from the 1976 Onsitral rules. The first version of the Onsitral rules, uh, which is still, I think, the most common one, at least in investment treaty arbitrations, because investment treaties are generally older than 2010, uh, where there was sort of a weak presumption. And this uh, provision said that, in general, the arbitral tribunal should rule on a plea concerning its jurisdiction as a preliminary question. However, the, the tribunal may proceed with the arbitration and rule on such a plea in their final award. So in the old version of, of the Onsitral rules, there was sort of a weak presumption um, for bifurcation. But now in the, the updated version, we have no such guidance and we are left with this general power of the tribunal. 
And the ICC rules, just to be thorough, uh, do not contemplate bifurcation specifically, but there's an appendix to the rules which advises tribunals that bifurcation is appropriate where it, quote, may genuinely be expected to result in a more efficient resolution of the case. So under most rules, bifurcation is left to the discretion of the arbitrators. Um, we should mention, though, because we like investment treaty arbitration, that there are some special concerns at play under the exit rules and the exit convention, because under Article 41.2 of the exit convention, um, any objection that the dispute is not within the jurisdiction of the center or for other reasons is not within the competence of the tribunal shall be considered by the tribunal, which shall determine whether to deal with it as a preliminary question or to join it to the merits of the dispute. And here I emphasize the shall parts. So there's no presumption here, but the, the exit convention requires that a tribunal actually make a formal decision on bifurcation if bifurcation is requested. And this goes back to sort of the general overarching principles that we touched upon, I think, at the latest time was when we uh, talked about transparency and whether or not there should be transparency as a default in, in investment arbitration and if the tribunal has the power, which is that the states uh, are presumed to be generally under no obligation to account for their conduct in front of a foreign tribunal absent state consent. So this is like a public international law principle going back to sovereignty, uh, mm. which make which is where the exit convention, which is obviously drafted for international law disputes specifically, different from the commercial arbitration rules. So that's uh, that about the power. Let's move on to when a tribunal should bifurcate. And this is, I think, the interesting part. Uh, we have now established that, generally speaking, tribunals do have the power to bifurcate, and in exit cases, they may even have a duty to consider bifurcation. But when should they do so? Of course, as always, if the parties agree, no problemo. They can do that right away. Um, however, uh, tribunals have bifurcated procedure uh, on its own motion, sometimes actually without the, the parties even requesting it but that's a sort of a side note typically of course in the vast vast majority of cases bifurcation is requested and then contested by the other side this is the typical fact pattern that we have one party typically the respondent but sometimes as brian mentioned also maybe the claimant has requested bifurcation and the other party has an opposing interest and, and thus uh, contests the request this means that the tribunal will have to decide it uh, typically in a procedural order. And as I said, um, sua sponte bifurcation is exceptional, but there are a few cases uh, where we don't really have to go into, but uh, sometimes the tribunal might deem it necessary to do so, uh, even without the, the parties agreeing to it. Maybe we should just attack head-on the, the claimant side that Brian hinted at, because generally speaking, it's not in the claimant's interest to bifurcate, but it could be. And one good case to illustrate this is uh, Noble Ventures versus Romania, where the claimant proposed a bifurcation uh, of liability and damages, claiming that the claimant, quote, would be prepared to fully present the merits of the dispute in short time, but the quantum of damages would be a matter of extensive discovery of documents and therefore would require longer limits. So basically they wanted the liability face dealt with as quickly as possible uh, and then they wanted to uh, take a separate 
step for the quantum phase where they needed more work. Uh, Romania, of course, opposed this and ultimately the, the tribunal denied it. Would you be able, Brian, to explain in generic terms cases that you may have seen where the claimant has an interest in bifurcating or is that too close to home? No, I, well, I actually have a case that might be coming up quite soon um, in which bifurcation for the claimant actually would be um, positive. And also with funded cases, um, I see that there's a funder may want the case to be bifurcated in order to determine whether, let's say, the merits is actually something quite black and white, um, but there's a lot of jurisdictional issues. Um, a funder might want to see, especially on the claimant side, that the claim could past the jurisdictional threshold before moving into any additional terms on oh, the merits. Right. Um, so I think for the claimant, it might be positive that they don't want to expend a considerable amount of money going all the way to the end of the case, having it be thrown out on a very like clear jurisdictional objection that could be brought. Mm, good point. Mm -hmm. It also makes sense. I had a case where it made sense to bifurcate. I'm thinking if we also trifurcate it. I think we did because it's helpful for the parties if they want to settle. Mm. Right. So it might make, you know, settlement discussions are ongoing during the arbitral proceedings. And, you know, as, as, uh, as you move forward in these phases, then, you know, the discussion evolves one way or another. So mm -hmm. it's helpful in that sense to not like spend all the money and the resources to go ahead and have, you know, a determination on quantum as well, exactly for the reason you mentioned in, in this noble case, mm -hmm. um, and have a determination on liability first, and then the parties can meet again and discuss. All right, you can sort of negotiate in the in the shadow of, of some sort of certainty about... Yeah, right, exactly. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But it, typically, as I said, of course, uh, we do have opposing views here, uh, even though the claimant, for example, might feel that the, the liability phase is black and white, the respondent typically does not agree uh, and, and uh, objects to the request, although typically it's the other way around, that the respondent requests bifurcation in investment cases, typically for jurisdiction, and the claimant then objects to this, and then the tribunal is left with trying to sort this out. And the guiding principles in this determination, generally speaking, are procedural, economy, and fairness. And the most commonly referred to test, quote-unquote, but we're, of course, dealing with the same kind of caveats as always, like the Cellini criteria, for example. This is not a hard and fast rule-based test. This is like a, a just a leading, non-binding case from jurisprudence. That is uh, Glamis Gold, a NAFTA case under the Ancitral rules brought by a Canadian minor, I think, against the U.S. Um, the U.S. requested bifurcation of two jurisdictional objections. First, that the investor brought one of his claim under uh, after the expiry of the three-year limitation period imposed by NAFTA. And secondly, that the claims were not ripe because the investor had, had not yet suffered any in injury. And Glamis opposed this request to bifurcate into a jurisdictional phase first. And in its uh, second procedural order, PO2, the tribunal observed that uh, notwithstanding this presumption in favor of bifurcation that I mentioned under the old version of the Ancetral rules, which was applicable here, uh, the tribunal said that bifurcation was inappropriate where it is unlikely to bring about increased efficiency, efficiency in the proceedings. 
and the tribunal noted three considerations which were particularly relevant in determining whether to bifurcate and these are sort of the, the glamis gold criteria one whether the objection is substantial in as much as the preliminary consideration of a frivolous objection to jurisdiction is very unlikely to the, reduce the costs or time required for the proceeding two whether the objection to jurisdiction results in a material reductions of the proceedings at the next phase if it is granted that is and three whether bifurcation is impractical in that the jurisdictional issue is so intertwined with the merits that it is unlikely that there will be any savings in time or cost. Um, so we have these three criteria from Glamis uh, that many tribunals have cited and then of course there's subsequent jurisprudence building on this. Uh, maybe we should just briefly go through how tribunals have actually applied and modified these criteria. First we have the serious and substantial uh, objection where tribunals generally do not look to the substance of the objection as that would undercut and maybe even prejudice the proposed jurisdictional phase. Instead, tribunals limit their assessment to whether on its face the objection is frivolous or clearly without merit. So sort of like a prima facie thing, which is common in many other contexts in arbitration. You just do a, do a glance over and see is this substantial or not. This is typically not the, the most sensitive uh, leg of the test. It is rather the second one, um, will it result in a material reduction of the proceedings? And here, of course, the ideal candidate for bifurcation is an entirely dispositive jurisdictional objection. The treaty is not in force, the investor does not meet the treaty's criteria, etc., etc. So basically, if, if you can kill the case entirely uh, by granting this objection, that might uh, support that there's uh, a material reduction of the proceedings to be found. But this is, of course, not always the case that you have this sort of clear-cut uh, jurisdiction objection that will just end the case immediately. A good example of how complicated it can be is the Gavrilovich versus Croatia case, where the tribunal noted that even if the respondent were successful in its objection, which was a forum selection objection, it would not appear to obviate the need for a merits phase Indeed, the scope of the dispute, although perhaps narrower, may not be so narrowed as to warrant the cost, expense and inconvenience of dividing the proceedings into two phases. Put simply, as the claimants contend, it appears not to be a substantial enough objection in and of itself to justify bifurcation. Um, so here bifurcation was not granted, but we have other examples of complicated objections where tribunals did bifurcate uh, for example, in, in Philip Morris, uh, where the tribunal found that bifurcation was warranted when the objection would uh, get rid of an essential part of the claims raised. Or in Mesa Power, when the objection is likely to narrow the scope of issues to be briefed at the merits. So it's not a clear-cut test that you must get rid of the whole case with the objection, but if, if it can be um, a large part of the case that you can get rid of and you can you know significantly minimize what you have to deal with at a later stage you may still get bifurcation and then we have the third and final uh, part of, of this glamis gold test with which is that the objection against jurisdiction should not be too intertwined with the merits which is of course not very easy to understand and when things aren't easy to understand we go to professor christoph schroyer who explains that bifurcation is not 
uh, now I quoting, not appropriate where the answer to the jurisdictional questions depends on the testimony and other evidence that can only be obtained through a full hearing of the case. And this, I think, from my limited experience, is often the case. If you do not get bifurcation, it is because it is so hard to isolate the objections from the merits. And there's simply no procedural economy in doing it once during the jurisdictional phase and then again during the second phase because they concern the same fact pattern and you would have to talk to the same witnesses and basically brief the same issues twice over. Moving on to why you should request or for that matter oppose bifurcation and this has to do of course with the efficiency. If a jurisdictional objection would dispose of the need for a merits phase you could have a lot of uh, advantages uh, in doing it, but it's some kind of a guesswork because the, the, it assumes that you actually win on your objection. If you don't, you have to move on and you've added considerable time typically and expenses because you've had two teams of lawyers and an arbitral tribunal hearing complicated preliminary issues only to move on with the case. So in, in the typical case, I'm guessing you would have added at least a year to the proceeding. So it can be a gamble, um, which means that there are important strategic considerations here, which is hard to talk about in the abstract, obviously. Um, but we do have an article that our research actually brought up to us. I hadn't re had read it before uh, by Marion Carlson and Patrick Childress in Investment Treaty Arbitration Review, the fourth edition, uh, talking about this strategy. And they say that bifurcated proceedings focus on the proceedings on facts favorable to the respondent. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> because mm. in, the, uh, in, the, in the ideal case, you could have an entire hearing on what bad people the claimants are. Say, for example, that you as respondent bring an unclean hands objection. Even if you don't win on that objection, even if the case moves on, you've had maybe a year of back and forth just about how bad the claimants are and you've got to present your case painting the claimants in a bad light which may actually indirectly on some subconscious level influence the the tribunal at the later stage when you have to deal with the merits because then you've already sort of set the tone um you also have sort of a similar point here that the mere request for bifurcation itself has some strategic effect because even if you don't get bifurcation, even if it's unlikely that you will get bifurcation, you will get the opportunity in your request to present your narrative earlier in the proceedings than you would otherwise have had. So as a respondent, essentially, you're putting the claimant on defense when mm. it should be on offense. Mm. I don't know, this is, as I said, from, from an article, I don't know to what extent uh, counsel are this strategic in bringing requests to like shift the, the game, but I don't know, what, do you have any insights? <laughs> I, no, I think that's, ex I think that's a, exactly a strategy that a respondent's counsel will, would consider, is the fact that, just as you say, you're having all these objections let up front, one after the other, that this case is without merit, even before... It, getting to the merits of the case. Um, no, it's definitely a strategy that counsel would consider and should consider. You also have yeah. the, the fact that you mentioned, Brian, sorry, sorry, but you mentioned the, the third party funder aspect as well. Like mm -hmm. a, a respondent bringing this request can of course uh, delay the proceedings, making it more complicated for the claimant to get it funded. It's less attractive as a funder if you know that you'll have a drawn out proceeding with, with preliminary objections heard first. 
Yeah, I've had funders ask that specific question. Is this the type of case that would be susceptible to bifurcation? Mm, Precisely yep. for that reason. Yeah, and yep, so the, yep. the tribunal really needs to take that into consideration when they're weighing the efficiency aspects. You do say, that, okay, there's an efficient aspect of bifurcation because you're separating out issues that, if decided, can either kill the case or move it forward in a more efficient way. But on the other side, you really have to discuss what is, what, I mean, there's going to be a delay on the other end as well, depending on what the procedure is for the first, like, part of the bifurcated case. If it's going to have its own hearing, requiring people to travel from around the world, finding a hearing date, it could create a further delay than not bifurcating. Right. And we have this uh, another a final point about strategy as well, that, of course, by, by requesting bifurcation, you are sort of implicitly signaling that you have a strong objection. You set the tone mm-hmm. for the for the rest of the proceedings. And, and the the opposite is also true. If you fail to request bifurcation of a jurisdictional objection, which you then raise at the marriage stage, instead, it may be interpreted by the tribunal as sort of a concession that the argument is weak, because otherwise you would, of course, have brought this at the outset and come out swinging if you feel strongly about this objection. So why did you wait with this? Finally, sure. I, I just want to say a few things about opposing uh, requests to bifurcate. Um, because a claimant should arguably be wary of refusing the respondent's reasonable request for bifurcation because we have several cases where tribunals have held that the claimant had to bear the respondent's costs after considering a number of factors. Uh, and uh, Iberdrola Energia versus Guatemala, for example, um, the tribunal said that the claimant insisted that the proceeding should not be bifurcated, thus opposing the tribunal resolving the objection to jurisdiction of the respondent at a preliminary stage, meaning that the tribunal can actually come to the conclusion that by uh, opposing a request to bifurcate, you are essentially making the proceeding more complicated and by extension more costly, meaning that you might have to fork out part of the other side that did request a bifurcation, their costs. And we have the opposite as well in Karachu versus Kazakhstan, where the tribunal reduced the respondent's amount of the costs uh, to only those costs relating to jurisdictional issues, given that the respondent actually did not seek bifurcation of its jurisdictional objection, hinting that the respondent maybe should have bifurcated, but because mm. they didn't, they would have to pay more of the other side's costs, basically. So a lot of strategy involved, I think. Yeah, Absolutely. it's all strategy. I agree, it's all strategy. <laughs> but the way you're presenting it seems like it would, you know, every prudent respondent needs to be seeking bifurcation, which yeah, is probably why it. it's so common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that would explain why there's so much more bifurcation than investment treaty arbitration. Then, right? Is that? Mm. Yeah, I think so. In my experience, both now working as secretary and previously just you know reading a lot of cases, it's very rare that you see in investment arbitration like an award that deals with all the issues in one award. And when you do, it's typically so long. <laughs> These like yeah. three, four, five hundred pages plus awards tend to be the ones, the few and ones the, where you dealt with right. everything. Otherwise, you and have they, a decision on jurisdiction. You may have one on applicable law, and you have one on liability. Maybe one on quantum. Maybe several on quantum, depending on what happens. Yeah, I agree. And also, like I feel that maybe I'm wrong that the awards that dealt with everything together used to be the older ones. Right. Yeah, like, you're so right. Absolutely. Yeah, like I feel like I haven't seen one <laughs> in the recent years uh, 
that dealt with everything at the same time. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah. No, I think you're right. Uh, uh, yeah, but that that confirms uh, what we're saying all the time. And and like you said, it's it, exactly like why if you're a respondent, not to give anyone you know crazy ideas here, but <laughs> it's uh, if you you you're you know you do oppose the jurisdiction as uh, as a first uh, step. I mean, you there's always an argument there. I mean. It, it's uh, so you would request uh, bifurcation if you have arguments against jurisdiction of the tribunal. Yeah, and as a, as a non-interested party here, i.e. as someone who does not represent parties, I generally like this, the tendency to bifurcate jurisdictional objections because the jurisdictional objections, if we're talking about investment treaty arbitration, tend to be uh, more interesting just from a legal perspective than liability and in particular than, than quantum. There's a lot of law and typically not as many facts involved in the jurisdictional phases. So I, just for like, you know, happy fun time <laughs> yeah. reading, I prefer a jurisdictional decision over a quantum decision. And uh, if you get a bifurcation uh, as an observer, it's more interesting to me at least to, to follow the case at that stage. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, no, it's interesting. Yeah, because that means you don't have to get, get into the nitty gritty details of the facts until, you know, after two, three years of the case. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a good objection, if it's a good bifurcation or reason to yeah. bifurcate, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's wow. it for me. I think we can uh, move on to, to uh, Brian's rain protective gear. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jill. That was really interesting. All right, for the second segment, we will be talking about umbrella clauses, as we alluded to in the introduction. Um, this segment may seem to be all over the map, and that's precisely because umbrella clauses are all over the map um, with how they're understood and interpreted. Um, and mainly that goes down to treaty practice, a state's treaty practice um, specifically, but also um, how the principle is interpreted. And then finally, the scope and effect of these umbrella clauses, which really goes down to the wording of each umbrella clause, because there are so many variations of an umbrella clause that have been interpreted to mean completely different things as, to far, as far as the scope of the protection of an umbrella clause uh, provision, but also the effect of it, of what can be included and what not can be included. So um, I apologize if this seems all over the map, but we'll try and navigate our way as best possible. Um, so umbrella clauses at, um, in its basic elements can be understood to be a response to a basic feature of public international law that says while states can enter into contracts, a state's failure to honor that contract um, can or cannot implicate state responsibility. Um, so it's whether this contractual breach can arise or rise, that's in its own interpretation, uh, to a level of a uh, treaty breach. Um, the before kind of historically, uh, you know, a state's breach of a contract could have huge um, financial implications for an investor and can be very costly for them. But the investor would always in that scenario be able to have recourse to the domestic courts. Um, so if the court found that the domestic court did not find that they, uh, the state had breached, the claimant would not be left with any remedy at all. Um, so there has been some advocacy and in um, not advocacy, but also change in treaty practice in order to cover and bring into the jurisdiction of a BIT 
um, tr uh, contract breaches. So this, I mean, dates back all the way to 1904 in a case from called the Affaire Martini, a uh, case from the Italian Venezuela Commission. Um, it was a contract between Venezuela and the Martini Company. Venezuela sued Martini in Venezuelan courts for the non-payment of rents, and the courts annulled the contract. But then before the commission, uh, Martini sought damages at arbitration, alleging there was no basis for the annulment. Um, a majority of the tribunal held that there could be no damages, although the Venezuela's court judgment was unjust. Breaches of contract do not give rise to state responsibility on the international plane, and Venezuelan law permitted the breach, and finally there was no denial of justice. Um, so there was really no legal protection for those contractual obligations entered into between the party. Um, but as early as 1950, uh, we have, or the 1950s, so in 1959, we see the first ever BIT incorporating provisions that, uh, similar to an umbrella clause in the German-Pakistan BIT, where they included a provision that said, quote, um, that requiring host states to ensure the observance of any undertaking which it may have given in relation to investments made by nationals of any other party. And that was taken from a the Abs Shawcraft Draft Convention on Foreign Investment of 1959. Mm -hmm. um, so they, the people refer to umbrella clauses as, and you know, not just as umbrella clauses, but they can be observance of undertaking clauses. Um, but basically what it says is that you know, the reason why they use the term umbrella is because it can bring certain contractual breaches under the umbrella of the BIT. Um, and therefore you have these, this, the term umbrella clause. Mm, I, I actually belong to the camp that, that thinks that uh, observance of undertakings clause is a much better elegant and sexy way of putting it. But I think <laughs> that might be the... Why I am I know. not surprised? <laughs> it's, it's more accurate. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Because the term umbrella really kind of does not really capture what the effect of the or the scope yeah of and the like the legal significance of the word umbrella is close exactly. to zero whereas observing any undertaking is a much more precise way of putting it but i realize i may not be in the majority here <laughs> well i mean also that like that terminology wouldn't it, it has kind of a specific indication that it's um any undertaking whereas the, sometimes the provision may have different wording that wouldn't word it precisely that way ah, good point um good. well argued it is quite common. Um, so 40, we have a figure from UNCTAD that says that 43% of all BITs contain an umbrella clause. Um, but usually these BITs limit the scope of the clause, for example, restricting the protections to particular kinds of undertakings, um, whether they be in relation to this, a specific investment or a specific investment agreement. Um, other BITs put procedural limits on umbrella clause protection, such as requiring the claimant not to uh, the claimant undertake not to bring a claim under a relevant contract before national courts prior to making a claim um, in arbitration. Um, but you can see just by the way that scholars have described what an umbrella clause is that you see that there's um, very, uh, not I wouldn't say inconsistent, but kind of contrasting views on how to present this idea. So if you look, for example, uh, Prosper Weil, who's a French solicitor or French lawyer, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, he presented the idea as an investment treaty that would transform a mere contractual obligation between a state and an investor into an international law obligation, in particular if the treaty included a clause obliging the state to respect such contract. Um, Francis Mann was of the view that umbrella clauses in a BIT protects an investor against a mere breach of contract 
It's a provision of particular importance in that it protects the investor against any interference with his contractual rights, whether it results from a mere breach of contract or a legislative or administrative act. And it's independent of the question whether or not such an interference amounts to an expropriation. So there we not we have basically any, this goes to what Joel was saying about um, undertaking is whether there's some sort of unilateral action taken by the state, such as a piece of legislation or administrative act that could interfere with an investor's um, contractual rights. Um, Ibrahim Shihada, the former secretary general of ICSID, also recognized umbrella clause claims saying that treaties may elevate contractual undertakings into international law obligations by stipulating that the breach by one state of a contract with a private party from the other state will constitute a breach of the treaty. So that term elevate has often been used um, in discussions about um, umbrella clauses. Dolter and Stevens, the late Dolter, uh, very sad to report, um, used kind of discussed it along the same line, saying that these provisions seek to ensure that each party to the treaty will respect specific undertakings towards nationals of the other party. And it's of particular importance because it protects the investor's contractual rights against any interference which might be caused by either a simple breach or administrative or legislative acts. Um, we Guy, can, should you, sorry, okay, no good. Before you no, jump no, into Gaillard, who's present, I think we, I just want to mention that I, I think, without knowing exactly what you've been quoting, that both Prosper Wiley, Ibrahim Shahada, and uh, the Dolzer and Stevens book, all of these pronouncements are from before there was any jurisprudence on number right. clauses, right? This is from like the 80s and 90s, basically. Exactly. Sort of talking about it in abstract. I assume we'll get back to some some jurisprudential complications later on, and maybe even Gallard is more contemporary. But it's interesting to note that there were a lot of views about umbrella clauses before they were even tried and tested by tribunals. Mm -hmm. That is a very good point to point out, uh, the chronology of all of this. Um, so Gaillard did say that there's a historical examination of the origins of observance of undertaking clauses, um, showing that in the clear... Wait, 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 wait. Do you say that Gaillard called it observance of undertaking clauses and not umbrella clauses? <laughs> he did. He did, Joel. You are in a good camp. <laughs> yes, he'll vindicate. Uh, until we say that he is right in calling that, uh, you know, not umbrella clauses, he's not going to let it go, I think. <laughs> yeah, oh, this, this whole segment. Yeah. Um, but he Sorry. said that it shows in the clearest manner the intention of a state negotiating and drafting such clauses to permit a breach of contract to be characterized as a breach of an international treaty obligation by the host state. Um, so Schroyer also discussed umbrella clauses, saying that they've been added to some BITs to provide additional protection beyond traditional international standards. Um, and they are referred to as umbrella clauses because they put contractual commitments under the BIT's protective umbrella. Um, so we have all of these different um, scholars opining on how to use it, but essentially, as I discussed before, that it would really come down to the language. Um, so I'm just gonna bring some examples of languages of umbrella clauses to kind of give you an idea of how they can actually differ. Um, so for example, in the German model BIT, it says each contracting party shall observe any obligation it has assumed with regard to investments in its territory by nationals or companies of another contracting party. So there we have the term obligation, you have the mandatory shall observe, and then it says assumed, um, which can obviously be left up to interpretation as to whether a state has assumed that obligation or not, more beyond just signing a contract. 
Um, the Australia Poland VIT from 1991 used less forceful terms, saying a contracting party shall, subject to its law, do all in its power to ensure that a written undertaking given by a competent authority to a national of the other contracting party with regard to an investment is respected. So there you have, um, you know, subject to its law, all in its power, and then the fact that it has to be actually a written undertaking um, has some different elements in that BIT. Um, the Czech Republic and Singapore BIT from 95 provides a noteworthy exception to this general proposition by providing it was also incumbent on the state not to interfere with contracts relating to the investment. Um, so the Article 15 of that BIT reads, um, each contracting party shall observe commitments additional to those specified in this agreement. Um, and then it continues on saying each contracting party shall not interfere with any commitments additional to those specified in this agreement entered into by nationals or companies with the nationals or companies of the other contracting party as regards um, their investment. So just to briefly put that uh, to flag something here. Um, as regards their investment, there is some kind of interconnection that the obligation has to have with the specific investment that is um, the subject matter of the case. Um, so it cannot just be on its own, um, just a contract that um, the underlying subject matter is not an investment. Mm -hmm. um, there's also been discussions, and I won't go into too much detail here, but the structure of the BIT, so basically the placement of the umbrella clause within the framework of the BIT could have an effect to how it's interpreted. For example, you have um, the Swiss model BIT places the umbrella clause in a provision entitled other commitments, and it separates it from the substantive provisions by two dispute resolution clauses and a subrogation clause. Um, and the majority of BITs concluded by Switzerland follows that format. Um, Another variant that you can see is that um, the umbrella clause can be in a separate provision from the substantive protections, but before the dispute resolution clause, this is in like the German model BIT. Um, and then the effect of the placement clause within the overall framework is a bit uncertain as to how that would be interpreted, but you could have it, for example, within the obligation, for example, um, an FET obligation, you can have an additional sentence in that substantive protection that says, language um, equivalent to an umbrella clause provision, um, in which case you kind of have more of an indication that the negotiation between the parties was to have it be a substantive protection under the BIT. Um, as I, so this kind of has led to the controversy, controversy in the um, jurisprudence. So as Joel was saying, and I think the, the most significant jurisprudence just to have like a, a nice stream of cases to show you the difference is the SGS uh, versus the P countries uh, saga. So there's three arbitral awards brought yeah. by SGS against three different countries, all beginning with the letter P. You have Pakistan, P, P, P. P, P yeah. and P. You have Pakistan, <laughs> Philippines, and then Paraguay. Um, and those claims related to contracts entered into by SGS with the countries to provide pre-shipment inspection services for certain goods exported by the host state. And when the host state terminated the agreement, SGS brought a claim under two umbrella clauses uh, found in the BITs. So if we look to these three cases, you can kind of see how the tribunals came to different conclusions based off of the, pr the presence of an umbrella clause in the BIT. So if you start with SGS v. Pakistan, 
Um, in the Swiss-Pakistan BIT, the provision provided each contracting party shall constantly guarantee the observance of the commitments it has entered into with respect to the investments of the investors of, of the other contracting party. Um, the tribunal explained that assuming jurisdiction over the dispute on the basis, basis of this clause would give rise to unacceptable results. And to quote the tribunal, it says, as a matter of textuality, the scope of the umbrella clause, while consisting in its entirety of only one sentence, appears susceptible of almost indefinite expansion. The text does not purport to state that breaches of the contract alleged by an investor in relation to a contract it has concluded with the state are automatically, quote, elevated to the level of breaches of international law. Um, so the tribunal held that the umbrella clause in the treaty did not amount to a substantive obligation, but rather signaled an affirmative commitment to enact implementing rules and regulations necessary or appropriate to give effect to a contractual or statutory undertaking. And only in exceptional circumstances that were not present in that case would umbrella clause give rise um, to jurisdiction. However, after that case came down, the holding was quickly criticized by Switzerland, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, and they sent a letter to ICSID explaining that it was alarmed by the decision, which not only runs counter to the intention of Switzerland when concluding the treaty, but is quite evidently neither supported by the meeting of the similar articles in the BITs concluded by other countries and not by academic comments on such provisions. Mm. Um, so if we move along in the chronology, you have the friendlier approach taken by the tribunal in SGSV Philippines, which was just a few months after the Pakistan case, um, where the tribunal took a, um, as I said, friendlier approach, but in stark contrast to its previous tribunals, and the tribunal observed that the umbrella clause in that case provides assurances to foreign investors with regard to the performance of obligations assumed by the host state under its own law with regard to specific investments, and that this assurance granted the tribunal jurisdiction over a simple claim for contract breach. But the tribunal did not take you know, a very strong position in that sense, but they tempered their claim by noting that the umbrella clause does not convert the issue of the extent or content of such obligations into an issue of international law, reserving the substance of the breach to municipal law. Um, and in that case, there was a forum selection clause in the contract uh, giving rise to SGS's claims, basically, and the tribunal did allow for the SGS to seek um, an award to be heard under before the Philippines courts before they returned uh, back to the tribunal to assess the claim under the BIT. Um, so if you kind of look at this, if you consider this to be a line of case or a specific view of how an umbrella clauses are to be interpreted, you can look to Semper v. Argentina, Eureka v. Poland, and Noble Ventures v. Romania again. Um, to quote, well, actually, that's a really long quote. I won't get into it, but you can look to Noble <laughs> Ventures v. Romania, um, who, has, who does a good job about internationalizing um, a contract breach um, basically saying that it would come under the um, auspices of the BIT. Um, and then you have a third arbitration brought by SGS um, that shifted the jurisprudence once again or brought a different view, which was SGS v. Paraguay. Um, and there the tribunal reached a conclusion almost precisely opposed to the Pakistan case, holding that the umbrella clause in the Swiss-Paraguay BIT simply establishes an international obligations for the parties to the BIT to observe contractual obligations with respect to investors, giving the tribunal broad jurisdiction over contract-based claims. 
Um, in explaining their holding, the tribunal saw no basis on the face of the clause to believe that the umbrella clause should mean anything other than what it says, that a state is obliged to guarantee the observance of its commitments with respect to the investments of the other state party's investor. Um, the tribunal acknowledged that in so holding, it is parting ways with the decision of the SGSB Pakistan Tribunal, which addressed the umbrella clause in the Pakistan BIT. Um, and then, so you have these, you know, three very, very different holdings on the tribunals, clearly trying to exercise their own or stretch their own scholastic muscles in coming to different conclusions. And um, here, though, this, this uh, clause is identical. Like the SGS versus Paraguay, the third case, the the Swiss Paraguayan BIT's mm -hmm. umbrella clause is basically a copy paste version of the Swiss Pakistani uh, clause from the first one. So it's not just you know different facts, different circumstances, blah blah blah, maybe, but it's still the the very same wording. Yeah, exactly. Which is why there's it is subject to such controversy because we have even the same clause be interpreted so differently. Um, so as, and then, you know, a lot of, some tribunals have followed this restricted reproach of Pakistan. So you have Siemens v. Argentina, um, Joy Mining, for example, the tribunal held that in this context, it could not be held that an umbrella clause inserted in the treaty and not very prominently could have the effect of transforming all contract disputes into investment treaty disputes under the treaty, unless of course there would be a clear violation of treaty rights and obligations or a violation of contract rights of such magnitude as to trigger the treaty protection, which is not the case here. Um, another case was the El Paso v. Argentina, uh, taking that restrictive approach. Um, some tribunals instead have followed the Phil Philippines' interpretation of the forest selection clauses, for example, in Bivac v. Paraguay. Um, and then more recently, some tribunals have adopted the Paraguayan approach, which was the largely permissible uh, approach. So this has led tribunals to embark on very, a very difficult, um, I say scholastic exercise, but treaty interpretation exercise of what, when an umbrella clause is an actual umbrella clause, um, or as Noble Ventures Tribunal put it, uh, a fake umbrella clause that would not bring such questions um, under the um, BIT. This is an, a good example of inconsistent you know, approaches by tribunals and confusion for investors. I mean, mm -hmm. every time we are advising on the scope of umbrella clauses, and it's so frustrating for our clients because, you know, we can't give a defend, you know, definitive answer. I mean, taking the example of Pakistan and Paraguay, if you have the same underlying, you know, wording and the tribunal's completely conflicting approaches, I think we could say they're completely conflicting approaches. I mean, they were taking... They were taken, what, with a um, difference of, what, around 10 years, if I'm not mistaken. I think there was early 2000s for Pakistan, and then Paraguay right. was 2012 or something. Or exactly. I, I, um, but but you're, I, I think historically you're, you're right in pointing out, Jill, that the, the, the first cases, or discussion at least, was in the early 2000s. So that, that in a way, it's pretty recent, right? So it feels like... Uh, I don't know if we're going to go to a more uh, stable interpretation of umbrella clauses <laughs> in the future, um, but hopefully, hopefully. Assum assuming we have umbrella clauses in the future. Right. The assuming we have, yeah. They are not true. that popular among states and maybe drafted out of future treaties or at least heavily restricted, as has been the case in some recent treaties. 
well that that's true actually that's it's it's a it, that's a interesting point that you have raised because i uh when i was preparing when i was preparing a research an article on on umbrella clauses i had looked exactly at that point because the the common belief is that we are done with those umbrella clauses i mean mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying but in fact i looked at i mean i did focus on specifically African BITs because that was the scope of my research at the time. But I had found, uh, you know, a, a number of BITs that were okay that were uh, concluded by African states between 2007 and 2017. So you know, recent ones that do include umbrella clauses. Hmm. Um, so you know, that's a counter uh, argument to what you just said. I think that there's still discussions and uh, incorporation of umbrella clauses in recent BITs, maybe they're not the majority of them, but they definitely are. Because mm. I, I was looking and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, CETA and TTIP have kind of gone in the other direction and saying mm -hmm. that umbrella clauses would not be used. Um, and that maybe just has to do with the fact that these respondent states have seen kind of for lack of a better word, abuse of the use of umbrella clause claims, basically saying any, you know, any obligation. So, you know, there's no contract in place. There's really mm -hmm. no basis for the claim, except for the fact that some state authority had said um, that they could continue their investment for a longer period of time um, or something like that. And and so they said, well, this is just going to, it leaves open it to too much interpretation. Therefore, we should get mm -hmm. rid of it completely. Um, who knows? And there's, a, there's a similar, we recognize this pattern, very generally speaking, from like MFN clauses or FET clauses too, that there, first we have uh, a body of treaties that are probably drafted without the states fully recognizing exactly what they put in the treaties or seem to mm -hmm. put in the treaties. And we have academic commentary for a few decades, similar to the one you, you quoted, Brian, with commentators basically arguing that th these are wide-reaching standards with wide-reaching implications and then we get the jurisprudence and the initial jurisprudence sort of relies on this traditional view that looks at the wording and then at the final stage we see states reacting to this realizing oh mm. shit this is actually what we we may have undertaken in this treaty so we have to do something about that mm -hmm. it fits into sort of a general step-by-step -step historical development too yeah also i think there's an interesting point is that when i was looking into it you never find a case where claimant has uh, raised um, an argument on the basis of umbrella clauses alone. Right. Yeah. And rarely as the first primary ground. Yeah, exactly. So you always have like, you know, FET or whatever expropriation in addition. So umbrella clause is kind of a secondary argument yeah. mm -hmm. when you think about it, even though it's completely disconnected, normally it should be disconnected from the treaty claim like you're elevating that's what you were saying you're elevating a contract breach to a treaty breach the right. separate separate legal basis completely different i mean you when you, if you're saying that there was a breach of contract it's not at all the same thing as saying yes there was a violation of fet or expropriation so um you know, I'd be interested in seeing, I actually, I don't think I've seen it, but I've never, I, I don't know for sure if there's been a case where a claimant has won only on the grounds of a breach of umbrella clause. I, 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 I would be surprised to see that also, which is also an additional thing. Yeah, because uh, even if you had a contract that has a stabilization clause where it would be mm -hmm. clear that a state could have violated a provision of the contract, mm -hmm. you would then kind of spin that into a legitimate expectations argument. Under exactly. The 
mm-hmm. under the FET. So you kind of, you see so many interconnections with the arguments that you might as well do this more holistic approach under the FET. Yeah. And in my very limited understanding, I also think that for many framing these cases, part of the problem with the umbrella clause argument relying on a contract and trying to elevate it is that similar to to the the second case, the SDS case, the Paraguay case, mm. and I'm oh, sorry, the Philippines case, the one that came just after Pakistan, there is typically a forum selection clause in the contract that you are trying to elevate. And that introduces a, an element of uncertainty mm-hmm. following the Philippines holding that, okay, we have certain um, expectations based on this contract and obligations in the contracts may have been violated or uh, not respected by the state mm-hmm. and that that may very well be the case but there's also this clause in this contract saying any case under this contract must be brought to domestic court or to any right. other specified court which right. may introduce uncertainty if you bring this to the tribunal because some tribunals will say okay maybe there is a case on the merits here but this contract you're relying on before we can elevate it you should go back to the domestic court according to what the contract itself stipulates good point yeah exactly <laughs> Well, and is Sadi, is your article out yet? Yeah, that was an old one that I, I mean, old one. I think it was from two, three years ago. I forgot the exact date. So I, it was, it was called Don't Forget Your Umbrella. I love funny academic articles. I was trying for to look for an interesting title and I just came up with that one. And then I was like, what was I thinking? But <laughs> Well, um, as we lighten up this discussion, let's lighten up even more for a happy fun time. So how to get our teams motivated uh, during this current lockdown, COVID-19. I'm going to ask each of you guys how you guys are coping. But before that, I thought it was interesting to go back to the basics. And when I mean go back to the basics, I meant look at the theories out there that we have in not in law for once, but in uh, psychology or management. There's been a lot of discussion actually from 1940s onwards, even 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 before, in the management circles and you know business schools teach that all the time on theories of motivation. So how do you keep your teams? motivated. Um, And I think law firms should learn from that, uh, not just now, but generally speaking. (laughs) Uh, I don't know how much you guys uh, have any, um, you know, input in such theories. Have you ever heard about theories of motivation? No. (laughs) No, No, I'm a lawyer. (laughs) But see, that's the problem. It's like we're social, (laughs) we're supposed to be social scientists. So we should look into that in law school as well. Um, so the first thing, you know, theory I'm going to mention uh, when we talk about motivation theory, the first ni- name that comes up um, in these, you know, management circles is the Maslow's theory. So Abraham Maslow, um, and that was in 1940, and it's called the Pyramid of Maslow, uh, and it's a bit dated and it's been criticized, but I still think it's interesting just to go back to that basic. So basically, just picture like a pyramid. And at the really, really bottom, you've got what he called uh, physiological needs. And so they're food, water, warmth, and rest, basically. You go a little bit up, and then there's safety needs, so security and safety. Um, then uh, moving upwards, belonging and love needs, which is uh, the need for intimate relationships and friends. Uh, you move forward up, 
esteem needs, prestige, and feeling of accomplishment. And finally, at the top is self-actualization, which is achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. And basically, the theory was that you couldn't fulfill um, you know, an elevated need until you fulfill the basic needs. So until you've got your physiological needs and safety needs and belonging and love needs, et cetera, that fulfilled, you can't like have your self-actualization, self-fulfillment need that are uh, fulfilled. Um, so it's an interesting theory because it, and you, you know, it was the first one that kind of um, stated that we have different needs, uh, but there's this hierarchy thing that has been criticized because a lot of theorists afterwards have done studies and they discovered that actually people need to have their needs fulfilled mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, so there was, you know, I'm going to just mention one or two others. Um, there's Herzberg that came up afterwards that come, came up with a two-factor theory. So the first, um, you know, what he was saying is that workers are motivated to work harder by motivators. What he calls motivators are more responsibility, more interesting work, more praise for good work. And on the other hand, he also evaluated what workers when workers become demotivated and the, he calls them the hygiene factors and when they're not met and these hygiene factors are pay working conditions relationship with colleagues um etc cetera, etc cetera. um and i think it's interesting just to remember those um and and you, you know put them in a law firm setting um there's been Additional theories, I'm not going to go into all of them, but one that caught my mind is called the self-determination theory, where it's basically the three circles that interact. The first circle is autonomy. This is when people are thinking they have choices and control over their own actions, which is, I think, a very big one in our setting, which we need. Autonomy. The second one is relateness, which is this is people wanting to care about or be cared about by others. Um, and competence is the last circle, which is this is people wanting to feel good at meeting challenges and gaining skills. Um, and I can, you know, I can feel you guys rolling your eyes and be like, what is this BS? And what is, how are we going to, you know, incorporate that in daily talks? And this is all McKinsey and all of these strategy consultants <laughs> work and yada, yada, yada. But honestly, there's been so much research done on this, guys. And basically boils down to extrinsic, you know, motivators and intrinsic motivators, extrinsic being, you know, what is outside. So all I've described, like, which is like, basically, um, you know, pay and other, you know, bonuses and uh, other stuff like that. And intrinsic is more like, you know, what is more, um, you know, uh, and only, not only a sense of identity and collective aspects, but they're, you know, what is more specific to individuals. So some want to be challenged under one status, under one to do good, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just thought it was interesting because this has been a research done in 2010, which mentioned that there was a threshold effect. So emotional well-being of levels increased with salary levels up to a salary of 75K. So that was $75,000, but that they plateau afterwards. Oh, yeah. I heard so much about this. Wow. I, I love this idea. So it's, you know, it's just like a certain level of money will keep you happy. And then after that, it's so much more than that, right? So it goes back to that pyramidal approach, I think, which which is to some extent, I think it, it's true, you know? Um, and there's so many other things, you know, on the content, like if we talk about the intrinsic, you know, level of satisfaction is how you can, you know, bring more 
um, you know, in-depth motivation to your staff from creating, you know, managing the content of your work. So you can do so by um, creating more autonomy. So being, you know, if you give people the power to be able to decide how to work or how to accomplish tasks, it actually increases their level of motivation. So there's been mm. research on that as well. Um, and then, you know, meaningfulness is also a very big one, of course. So, you know, mo motivation also depends on the extent to which people perceive their job as important and meaningful. Um, you know, I, I think we, we have to, to mention that as well. And then just finally, you know, you know to get away from theory and, and data, um, I think a lot of people talk about motivations, generally speaking, but they don't consider people, um, people's age. <laughs> It's, a it's an important factor, seriously, where you are in your life. It, yeah. you, you're not motivated at the same, you know, for the same things when you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s. And um, it, it's very different. And there's been research done on millennials in particular. Um, and so they've been asked, which three benefits would you most value from an employer? And the top three, what would you think? Let me quiz you guys on this. What do you think would be the top like things for millennials? Vacation, <laughs> work, work life balance. Yeah, I agreed. Actually, uh, so flexible working hours came <laughs> as the second most important criteria. The first one was training and development. Mm. Oh. And the third one was cash bonuses. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's very different things that that keep them motivated. You can um, flip that around probably for people in their 60s. Yeah, <laughs> you can flip that training at the bottom, cash bonuses at the top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, very true, very true. Uh, sorry for the disruption in the background. Uh, <laughs> just give me one second, maybe, and the crying will be over. Um, no problem. We, we all have a higher tolerance for that in these days. I'm yeah, sure we've all been from home. And so, you know, bringing back to the law firm life, I think this was a bit of a theoretical introduction, but I think all of us, including you, Jewel, even if you're not in a law firm, have now seen a change in how we have to adapt to the situation. I mean, all of a sudden we were asked to work from home. So the first thing, and, and you know, Brian, co correct me if your experience was different, but for me it was that, oh my gosh, we need to set up everyone with the right equipment mm -hmm. and make sure everyone can work, you know, remotely. And which is crazy because this should have been done way before. And I think, you know, to some extent, we all had the tools and we were working remotely when we need to, of course, when we travel for arbitration, et cetera. But to that extent, I don't think people had thought about it even for everyone, right? It was certain people that would work more remotely than others. But right now you needed to make sure that your entire team was set up. And I think you can't, you know, going back again to that pyramidal thing, if you don't have the basics, if your staff doesn't even have like a good computer or internet connection to talk about the previous <laughs> internet problem we had um, or, or even having two screens you know I think for us it was like we wanted to make sure everybody had a screen so they could work with an additional screen so we had everyone uh, has been sent an additional screen to work uh, with have the laptop and connected with the screen. So that was the first step is to make sure everyone was had the right tools to work basically. And then secondly, I think there's a lot of discussion about how are you going to keep your um, team, you know, motivated through inclusion. Uh, so how are you going to, you know, 
change what what the you know the tools we had before to kind of keep them motivated which is you know create a communication space or like a water cooler conversation how do you how do you replace that in the given t- you know in the current circumstances so do we have like i mean i'm going to ask a question now to you brian and also to you jewel do you have much more calls i imagine or you know conference calls and audio calls and video calls than you used to yeah i mean yes i we have we have a monday meeting now that's over zoom that we've never had a monday meeting before yeah. Um, so this is our Monday meeting at 9 a.m. We all get up and get in the Zoom space and discuss what we've been working on and what we're going to work on for the for the coming week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I we have had an associate like happy hour and we've only had one, but I know other firms that have like a, a recurring one. Yeah, associate happy hours is also something that has been developed is, is you know, having those those social drinks, you replace right. them. So we call them the Skyparitif, Skyparitif, that's, <laughs> that's what <funny>. it's called. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so we, we've tried to do that. I mean, it's not the same, but at least you have like a space where you can you can speak to people. So I, you know, I, I in my talking about my own personal experience, we also had have much more, we actually have daily calls. So daily calls to really short and sweet and be like every morning, like everyone is, and we have them as video. So we don't like force people to put the video on, but just so like we could see each other's faces. It doesn't matter if you've got a kid running in the background, whatever, it just makes it much more human, I think, to understand like people are, are there and we just discuss about, okay, so what is it that you're doing? What have you done? And what do you have to do basically? Mm Um, and I think it's doable if you're a, like a team of, you know, 10 or so, if you're more that might be more complicated, right? It's difficult to keep it under half hour then, yeah. uh, but you want to make sure it's short and sweet. Then we also have a weekly call. So this is um, not just with us, but also with our Paris team. And it depends, you know, how you guys are structured in the firm, but it's nice to have like a more general, uh, more detailed, maybe call about how, to have a bigger picture of how what everyone is doing and what we're doing and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, yes, like you mentioned, the, the Zoom, like, drinks and, and thing. But is this, like, is this enough? Is this helping people? Like, I think there's, going back to the theories I was mentioning, and I'm going to let you guys, of course, tell me about your experiences. But I feel like, of course, we're adapting really fast. In, in creating these spaces for, um, you know, for discussion and, and c- keeping in touch with people and having more communication. But I also feel like, and, and maybe that's talking more about my personal experience that, you know, when you talk to people about work, like there's this, everybody knows it's not, it's uh, okay, it's different times, but we're adapting as much as we can. But everyone's trying to do business as usual. Hmm. Yeah, and and, it, and it's kind of it's not business as usual, you know. I mean, people have families; they might be sick. I mean, they're not sick because they're working, but they might have, you know, friends or family members that are sick. And I think there's, I think there's a lack of. There's not a lack of, but they must. They they needs to be more empathy. I think, um, um, in 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 people talking to to other people. Um, can I can I ask you on on this note, Sadia, because yeah. you have the most the most uh, regularly occurring phone calls. Do you have the sense that it, it it is easy for those calls to turn into 
uh, people just trying to justify that they're actually doing work. Mm -hmm. There's a suspicion that you're not doing enough, so you have to. I, I fortunately do not have a lot of these calls because I basically work with only one other person, and then some other cases with other people, but not in this like everyday thing. But I've spoken to other people, law firm friends, who feel like they are basically just everyone does five minutes trying to explain what they're doing with their time because they feel bad and they suspect that their colleagues think that they aren't working enough. Whereas, of course, mm. everyone's in the same boat, so no one's walking around, you know, being oh. upset about other well, people. Well, that I think that's a really good point, actually. And also on that, on that, to respond to your question a little indirectly, we've been asked, and I think it's the same for you, Brian, as well, because we talked about it before, to enter our time daily, which is a change, uh, meaning that you know we as lawyers have to record our time, and we're supposed to do it daily, but to be honest, nobody really does it daily. Um, so usually we would do it weekly in our firm. I think, you know, that's tolerable. Uh, but right now there's a strict, strict instruction and we really need to enter our time daily so that management and everybody knows exactly what you're doing every day. So it does create a pressure mm. of, you know, you don't, you know, you don't make up work, obviously, in our, in this life, like everybody has to explain, we, we know what the cases are going on. So it's just to give like a strict um, routine and and so we know exactly okay this person has built that many hours on that case and what's going on and if this person has capacity then we know and they can focus on something else um, and that has been a big difference I think uh, from before has it been the same for you Brian? Yeah no actually that is that is one of them and I think the the tone of this check-in I think sh can change and vary depending on the firm like it can either be presented as we're checking and watching you because we need to watch our numbers. And if your numbers drop mm -hmm. or yeah. you're not justifying yourself, then we're going to discuss how to, if like compensation should be affected. So it's kind of the sword, whereas it should be, oh, well, clearly these are not, you know, this is an unprecedented time. You're probably going to have more time and more capacity than you would before. Let's figure out how to maximize your potential to use your like pyramid metaphor. Um, and that really goes to like, if you're talking about motivating and managing a team, it's not the, the the motivation is not fear 100 percent of the mm -hmm. time it should be everybody want especially in this profession we do derive a lot of intrinsic motivation on the value of our work and the, the level of our work and the type of cases that we're involved in so if recognizing that this is the type of personality in a law firm i think the the point of logging your daily hours and having these weekly calls is to make sure that everyone is able to reach their potential so more of like a supportive tone of okay, let's make sure you feel like you're working at capacity so that you're not waking up in the morning and Groundhog's Day, but you're more waking up in the morning and trying to do what's best for your career in the firm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's absolutely right. And also, I mean, in, especially in our profession, um, it, it is so demotivating to not have work. Don't you yeah. agree, guys? I mean, it, it must be the same you. for you, Jewel, right? I mean, we're yeah. three, all three of us, I think, feel have different you know, personalities and I think it comes across well in the podcast, but isn't that like a common thread to all three of us? I would, I, I wouldn't like that to not have anything to do at all. Um, and, and in, in keeping track of people who have availability, I, and I think again, the onus goes to the managers here and the senior people is to give, you know, or those people who have uh, capacity, something to do. There's always work in this mm -hmm. world. I mean, mm. especially, you know, the, we were talking about it earlier, the, you know, articles writing, um, which you can call knowledge management to use the code for entering hours in our world <laughs> or 
business development, you know, I mean, you can keep eyes on, on what new clients you can, you can get from um, this existing uh, crisis. Um, So many different things that you can do, Um, you know, newsletters, publication or organization of webinars, or um, there's a trillion of you know professional associations that you can join if you don't want to do something specifically related to your firm you know be, be call it you know a, a regional organization or something that is related to your interests more specifically in arbitration so there's so many other things i just think that um maybe it's an onus on the managers right now to kind of you know, present the people with these opportunities because it's it's usually people say, oh, you know, you can you should be able to. You're in charge of your own career. You know, as a lawyer, like right. no one's going to tell you what to do. But I think this is a very difficult time um, to ask. You know, every lawyer to kind of motivate on its own. So I think we mm. it, it it would be nice to have like a bit of a a push coming from someone saying, okay, you know what, why don't this week, why don't you do that or do, do this or et cetera, et cetera. Also, there's another thing is I feel, and again, like a, a question to you both, um, maybe more Brian again, because of the structure of a law firm, but I had a feeling that um, people want to know what's going on. Going back to my point about the business as usual thing, it's not business as usual. So we would like to know what's going on in the firm. Like, how are we doing, (laughs) you know, Um, and which is usually a discussion that are reserved for, you know, partners, counsel, whatever, senior people where we always, you know, look at the numbers and we usually do that. We don't include the conversation with associates. I think right now is a good time to kind of be like, hey, we're in this together. And just so you know, this is how we're doing. You know, this is this is how we're doing this month. And if if you're having a good month, which is, I think, the case for <laughs> disputes lawyers as opposed to transactional lawyers right now, you know, just give them a pat on the back and be like, you know, guys, you know, this is how many hours we've done, well done, or uh, given the circumstances or something like that, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think an interesting um, aspect of this is firm structure and also I mean this is not specifically Mm. like private practice but also Joel for you as well is that people that get to senior positions and also become managing partners are really just partners and they really haven't had any management course or any sort of management background Mm -hmm. so you at the end of the day if there's no work to be had or that they're not going to kind of invoke these managerial um, aspects of the of their role and instead just say well these are my cases. There's no work to be done in those cases. And I don't need to take care of you because we're, you know, autonomous lawyers have to take care of ourselves. I feel like there, there should be a real big push um, on the senior side to be good managers in this, in this particular period of time. And we don't really have that embedded in our roles. We don't have Mm -hmm. that, you know, a partner is not someone who's a good manager, a partner is someone who's a great lawyer. um, And those are not necessarily connected. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you think about like the number one thing that I was telling you about millennials, so millennials are basically, you know, the people who are our associates today, really. Mm, right. <laughs> All of them are millennials. So their number one concern is training and development. I mean, this was, uh, you know, great. This was a survey that was not on law firms specifically, of course. So, you know, caveat to what it means. But still, I, I still think it's true. Um, and, and so learning and development, training and development, they want feedback. I think they're, they're really want feedback. And it, it, in normal times, and I, I will stress this again, I don't think like you rightly mentioned, Brian, I don't think this is being done 
even in regular times <laughs> because yeah. we're such bad managers. And yeah. right now, I think it's going to really have some damaging effect in the long term if people don't shake themselves up and be like, shit, like we really, sorry for cursing. You can cut that out if you want. <laughs> but um, we need to get our, our, you know, our our business together uh, to not use a curse word again and, and, um, and, and look at the motivation of our troops and make sure they're, they have the appropriate feedback for their work and et cetera. And you can do that by Zoom or Teams or whatever tool you're using, um, I think. Uh, you know, sit down and still give feedback to to your associates, which is just one of the things we should be doing to manage uh, our teams properly. I think. Yeah. Um, but just well, that's, you know, that's the difference yeah, between these these check in calls versus one on one management. Basically, like, are is are the firms putting in the steps and the tools together in order to not just say, okay, everyone's held accountable at nine a.m. on Monday, or are they saying? Mm-hmm. you we've looked at your hours we clearly see that there's a lack of, of work available to you so let's work together and make that work the again the problem is the managing partner isn't even in our department so i can't have the managing partner help because he doesn't really know what i'm doing okay mm-hmm. well can i look to my own partner well they know what i'm doing but they're not really concerned with the you know my full picture of hours to be built so who's really who am i accountable to for all of this yeah, no, that should be defined. That's the thing. I think people should, everyone should have a person that's checking mm-hmm. on you. You know, they should just divide themselves, I think. And uh, this, uh, of course, I don't know uh, if, if, if uh, you know, even in my own firm, we're not doing that. But I, I think it's so important to, in addition to, like you said, those weekly calls, have a one-on-one, because everybody has a different situation. I mean, mm-hmm. just taking the three of us, you know, uh, one of us is in a, you know, two of us, no, all of us are in a, in a relationship. Okay. So that's fine. But what, you know, one of us like me, I have a kid, uh, you know, some people could have a sick person they're taking care of home. Who knows, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. if you're not aware of those things, I mean, I'm usually a very, um, private person and I, I don't like to, you know, to share my life with them, <laughs> even if that doesn't come across in the postcards because I say everything, but, um, <laughs> with my <laughs> professional, uh, you know, uh, usually, you know, to try to keep a distance. But I think right now, like, people need to make people feel comfortable so they can share a little bit and be like, hey, you know, are you okay? Like, do you want to, maybe you can adapt your hours differently or something like that. Mm, I, right. I don't know. It's um, just to talk. But I know how Jill loves, like, you know, having a takeaway from our discussions and not just being talk, talk, talks. <laughs> so Executive gonna- summary. Executive summary. So what should we have like maybe three or four points that takeaways from this discussion or, or maybe you guys have some advice uh, to give to uh, managers or even just generally speaking or uh, listeners to stay motivated or to keep their teams motivated? I think the be each other's person point is well mm-hmm. taken and a very good takeaway, which applies not only, of course, partners to associates but in general the way we are each other's persons and checking in and making sure Mm -hmm. we're okay that's something Mm -hmm. you can do uh, both ways it goes both ways Mm -hmm. very crucial to show empathy and right try to connect to people beyond the like professional day-to-day stuff too because we're all experiencing different kinds of challenges right now and we're in it together yeah and as a second takeaway it's very individual it's case by case so Mm -hmm. it's kind of related to your point joel but just Everyone's in a different circumstance, as you're saying. Everyone's deriving value differently, which is why teams are built on different personalities and different, you know, strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, this keeping in touch and 
actually being, you know, the active verb of managed um, needs to be done individually. Yeah, very good. I think these are so two good points. I would also add, like, maybe also set clear expectations yeah. with your clients. And, you know, with everyone, actually, so to everyone you're accountable to. So, you know, your, your staff, your, you know, your partners, your clients, everyone, because, um, again, like I mentioned, yes, there are, you know, clients are <laughs> asking for stuff ASAP, ASAP. Um, you know, there are certain places in the world where there are no lockdown, Sweden, Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, or other places. Like before I was working uh, with a client doing business uh, in Pakistan and there was no lockdown in Pakistan. And then all of a sudden now there's a lockdown. So now they're more understanding <laughs> what's going on. So the deadlines are not the same. Um, but, you know, I think we, we need to be able, don't feel shy to speak for your team and be like, hey, you know, we might need more time to do this given the circumstances um, so set clear expectation and also I think including your team into this challenge and be like hey we guys are all in this together let's like brainstorm ideas of how we can do something you know cool right now you know whether it's a webinar or anything like just give them some power you know going back to that autonomy and power thing of thinking a little bit outside the box so not just be I read a another interesting article on Harvard Business Review. And and again, it was just try to think outside of the box. So it wasn't um, tailored to law firms. But what they were saying is that what is extremely important and and they've looked at the, at you know remote working as, as an issue more generally is that if you only have like a day-to-day -day task, you know, list of I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do this, like at some point people lose motivation what you need is for them to feel empowered um, and to give them like a, a, a more impactful uh, task rather than just a, a list of, of things that they need to do. So think about a wider strategy of how, you know, make, you know, use this time um, to make it an opportunity for the firm. So that could be mm. as simple as, hey, you know, why don't you look for business development, um, you know, opportunities in that sector or in that region or something like that, you know, give something more meaningful than the daily day work to you. That's a great point. I think that's it for me, guys. Well done. I feel motivated to start something new. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, we need to stay motivated, don't we? So Yes, because this keep... may not end anytime soon. So I agree with you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So let's turn this uh, challenge into an opportunity like the all the the wise business people would say exactly <laughs> all right guys good episode thank you to yawn and don't forget to contact us at the arbitration station at gmail.com or at the arb station um and we'll get back to you next time from well not recording together but at least i will hopefully uh, fingers crossed be close to you geographically and we can record this remotely but closer <laughs> yes that I would make that. a big I difference I, I feel i will feel you closer too that would be better i'm sure <laughs> all right stay safe stay all healthy right. bye guys bye bye <laughs>